Okay, just let me know, Sarah and Brandon, when you want me to start. I'm happy to do that. All right, we can start it right now. All right, so welcome to Mocha Scientists for Kids. I'm Brandon Begary. And I'm Sarah Begary. Also, if everyone could please mute their microphones. Can you close all the other stuff? This program started to increase awareness on science, technology, engineering, math careers. We got weekly virtual presentations from the top scientists in the area. Today's presentation will be by Dr. Sherlock, who's a director at National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health at the National Institute of Health. And if anyone has any questions, you can just type in the chat and we'll answer at the end. Okay, great. Thank you, Sarah and Brandon, for inviting me. And uh, it's a pleasure to talk to uh, students. I hope everyone's doing well and safe with the pandemic uh, still raging here in Montgomery County, unfortunately, but I think we're almost out of the woods. So today I just want to spend a little time talking about what complementary health is, why it's important, why we're studying it at the NIH, and just give you a little background. So when we think about um, complementary health approaches, we're really talking about uh, really uh, a group of diverse medical health care practices, products, systems that were primarily developed outside of mainstream medicine, but are often used uh, with conventional uh, care. And um, these approaches include, uh, you've probably seen if you go to your local GNC or pharmacy, many of them on the shelves as natural products, herbal supplements, probiotics, which are live microorganisms that are intended for health benefits, prebiotics that are intended to um, uh, feed microorganisms in your body, um, and other dietary supplements. In addition, we have another class of uh, complementary approaches we, we study, which are called mind and body approaches, such as acupuncture, yoga, massage, meditation, deep breathing, spinal manipulation, and Tai Chi. And the reason, um, what do we really do at the NTCIH? Well, we are uh, part of the NIH, and we conduct research to help answer important questions about the public health. Uh, and about the use of complementary health approaches. And we tried to really determine what are the most promising approaches. Many of these have been uh, approaches and products that you see on the shelves that have not been tested. So we need to know what really helps and why, and what doesn't work, and what is safe. So, and why is this important? Because if you think about it, uh, three out of 10 adults and one out of 10 kids actually use complementary health approaches. Two out of 10 adults use some sort of dietary supplement. And you just have to open your internet page and look uh, on the web, and you can see excessive marketing of complementary health approaches. And many of them, and many individuals who use these approaches really don't know the science behind them. And in some cases, there is no science. And in some cases, the science is negative. In some cases, it's positive. So it's really important to be an informed consumer and understand why what these products can and can't do. And just to give you a sense of what's going on in the United States, this is a survey done uh, about eight years ago now showing that uh, the 10 most common complementary approaches used in the United States by adults, and certainly natural products is number one, followed by deep breathing, yoga, tai chi, qigong, chiropractic, and osteopathic manipulation. 
meditation, massage, and so on. That's for adults. For children, it's pretty much the same with natural products leading the way. Chiropractic number two, yoga, tai chi uh, number three. And so it gives you a sense of what people are using. The question now is why? And when you ask people why they do engage in complemented approaches for something, for example, like yoga, which many of you may practice already, I certainly do uh, two or three times a week myself, um, they mainly say they're doing it for wellness, just to keep uh, healthy and be well. Uh, that's about 90%. Some people do use it to treat various conditions, and I'll get into what those conditions are uh, later in my talk. If you look at natural products, again, 85% of people report using natural products to maintain wellness. Uh, others report using them for some sort of health condition. Uh, similarly, with spinal manipulation, about at least over 50% report uh, using them to maintain wellness, where some are using uh, this, uh, seeing a, a chiropractor, for example, for some health condition. So what is the health? Did my screen just freeze? Oops, sorry. Uh, uh, how do I? Oh, there we go. So, um, sorry. So, why do people use uh, complementary health approaches? Well, the number one reason people report using them is for the management of pain, back pain, neck pain, joint pain. Um, Fibromyalgia, which is a kind of uh, global generalized pain, are the, are, the, are the top four reasons out of six that, that adults report, you know, choosing complementary health approaches. For children, it's, it's basically the same. The top two out of six are for back pain or neck pain or other musculoskeletal pain. And then you can see the other reasons children report using uh, complementary health approaches. Um, Certainly, I know as a student, uh, high school student, that didn't get a lot of sleep, so I think that's a lot of reasons why some kids turn to natural products for, for sleep pain. But pain is really a serious public health problem. It's probably the number one public health crisis in the United States right now, and I think if you turn on the news about painkillers and what's going on with painkillers and the deaths associated with use of opioid painkillers, you can see that we don't manage pain very well, and that's the reason people Turn to uh, complementary approaches. They're they're non. Many of them are non-pharmacologic and don't have side effects. But are they effective? Is the question. So um, we know that uh, 23, 25.3 million adults. That's 11 percent of the adult population have daily chronic pain, and 24 point 23.4 million, or about 10 percent of the uh, adult population report a lot of pain. So this is a really serious problem in the United States. And when you think about pain, you know, uh, the early uh, French philosopher René Descartes thought of pain as something that uh, we were like machines where you sense pain, in this case fire, it travels up these, uh, these nerve cells or nerve circuits to the brain and then the mind, uh, René Descartes thought about, perceived the sensation of pain. Well, in fact, uh, that's a, that was a good, interesting idea and has a lot of merit. Um, certainly that was done, that was discussed in the 17th century and now in the 21st century. So a lot of progress has been made on how we think about pain perception. And now we know a lot about how the brain processes pain. And we know that there are many circuits within the brain that uh, give you this sensation of pain. 
there are two primary aspects of pain that are encoded in the brain. One is about awareness of pain um, that involves the here the somatosensory cortex, the prefrontal cortex. This is what gives you the awareness of when you touch a hot stove or fire or get a um, sting, a bee sting. You'll you'll sense it in these areas of the brain. But there's also an emotional component that gives that is also activated when you experience pain. And these are the areas in the deep in the brain, the limbic system, the amygdala, and uh, other regions of the brain, the um, basal ganglia that are associated with the emotional aspects of feeling despair and pain and um, some of the fear that you're, that's associated with, uh, with, with pain. And both are important in, in being aware of pain. And so mind-body approaches like meditation, yoga, cognitive behavioral therapy, which you may have heard about where you see psychologists help you strategize about how to manage pain, may be useful in reducing um, the emotions associated with pain and actually the sensation of pain. And the reason that's true is because our brain is what we call neuroplastic. It, 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 has, um, it has the ability to, um, of nerve cells and, and these circuits and networks to change their connections in response to new information or learning as we do when we practice the yoga or meditation. And a very famous psychologist, Richie Davidson at the University of Wisconsin, has been quoted as saying, when the framework of neuroplasticity is applied to meditation, we suggest that mental training, such as meditation, is fundamentally no different than any other skill we learn, whether it's basketball or baseball or learning math problems, that can induce plastic changes in the brain. We're actually changing the wiring, the circuitry in the brain when we engage in these practices. And that's very important because engaging in these practices can have profound effects on how we sense pain. And this is a study done by a colleague of mine, Catherine Bushnell at the NIH, uh, where she asked uh, expert yoga practitioners to put their hand in a bucket of ice, you can see on the left here. And she basically asked them, how long can you keep your hand in the ice before you have to take it away? She asked this of expert yoga practitioners, people who did yoga for a very long time, and people who never practiced yoga. And what she was able to show is that people who practiced yoga for a very long time tolerated cold pain more than twice as long as, as people who didn't. And when she did neuroimaging, when she actually looked at their brains with uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging, a, a brain tech, uh, a tool to look at the brain, the living brain, uh, she saw that these yoga practitioners had more nerve cells in many brain regions, and they had more brain cells and connections in an area of the brain called the insula that's very important in sensing pain and activating what we call the relaxation response. This is activation of the parasympathetic nervous system. And um, she also was able to find out that um, these yoga practitioners had better strategies for relaxing and managing pain and people are not, who are not experienced with, with this practice. So again, here it shows that by practicing a fundamental uh, exercise like yoga, engaging in meditation, you can actually A, change the brain, but also change how you perceive a very intense, uh, noxious uh, event like pain, and you can manage it better if you have this practice, which is very fascinating to me as a, as a behavioral neuroscientist. In addition, uh, we know that the, the um, 
the brain can actually um, can actually uh, emits electrical signals, and these electrical signals can actually be measured by what we call electroencephalography or EEG. And EEG is a way of monitor is a monitoring method to record electrical activity of the brain. It's non-invasive. These uh, these surface electrodes are placed on the scalp, and then uh, you're able to record brain waves through these uh, through these uh, sensors. And what's interesting is that people practice meditation, uh, such as yoga and other forms of meditation. It changes the brain to enhance the concentration of these brain waves, and people are able to manipulate the brain waves more easily um, and generate electrical signals from these from their brain that's different from people who don't practice meditation yoga. And this is important because uh, brain signals that can be detected by these scalp electrodes can actually be attached to devices such as robotic arms. And um, people who are, for example, paralyzed or have problems with amputation could actually use their brains by, uh, by using these electric surface electrodes to drive robotic arms that could assist them in daily activities. So uh, what we've shown with research is that the practice of yoga actually makes it easier to activate these nerve cells that can actually generate these electrical signals that can be measured through these scalp electrodes that can actually drive brain-computer interface devices such as robotic arms. And I'll give you an example of that here. This is work done by my uh, colleague at uh, um, at uh, Carnegie Mellon University, my colleague Ben Ben He, who uh, is actually interested in, he's an electrical engineer, a biomedical engineer, interested in uh, mind and body practices and developing devices for people who uh, have uh, neurological disorders that aren't able to, to practice movement. So what you're seeing here is an individual using their brain uh, through a computer to actually track this um, cursor on the computer. So you can see that the cursor is actually, the robotic arm is trying to follow the cursor and the person is only using and imagining doing that uh, and the brain and the EEG is picking up those electrical signals to, so the robotic arm can move and track the, the circle on the computer screen. And what he was able to show is first he developed this al computer algorithm to be able to decipher the codes that are coming from the brain to the robotic arm so that the, the person can actually manipulate the robotic arm. But importantly, what he was able to show too is that mind-body awareness, such as meditation, improves people's ability to perform this task and become very good at it. So here's a case where computer technology and traditional complementary approaches are working together help people who uh, are unable to uh, move their arms and legs for various reasons to engage robotic arm to help them with daily activity. And that leads me to my final, um, my final topic here, uh, natural products. As we know, there are many natural products, botanicals uh, in our environment. There are marine natural products that we use, fish oil, for example, and other products that certainly come from nature. Many of them you find on your local pharmacy shelf. Um, many of them, unfortunately, we don't know a lot about. Um, we do know that many people have turned to uh, fish oil, and fish oil has been in the news a lot over the last few years. And uh, it's, been, it's been thought that fish oil might reduce 
uh, cardiovascular events or help with heart health and reduce uh, potential of heart attack. For the most part, the studies that we've supported at NIH have not shown that to be the case, although there is a new prescription fish oil that just came out on the market. Um, Icosapin uh, ethyl, which is part of fish oil, and that has been shown uh, in clinical trials to show some benefit for uh, heart health, but that is a prescription drug and not the entire fish oil omega-3 fatty acids that you would find on, on the shelf. We've done studies to look at, for example, echinacea, which has been purported to treat colds. The studies we've done in NIH have shown that they don't seem to do any better than a placebo or something uh, inactive in treating colds. Ginkgo biloba uh, has been touted as preventing dementia in older adults. People have problems with memory. People think ginkgo may help. In the studies we've conducted, it, it, it hasn't shown that. And uh, salt palmetto, another study uh, we've done at the NIH for uh, urinary symptoms suggests that uh, it may not be effective as well. So this raises the question about the uh, sort of you need to be an educated consumer and know um, the products that are on the shelf and what they're used for, and if in fact they are effective. Otherwise, you're wasting your money. In the in the best case, in the worst case, some of these uh, compounds can be toxic and hazardous. So you need to just because it's natural doesn't mean it's safe. And so we at NCCIH have put out an app you can get on our website called Herblist that gives you access to the latest scientific information of about 50 herbs that are um, available over the counter that you can easily um, access what we know about them, uh, what works, what might not work, and what the current science is. In addition, um, on our website, we have a whole website devoted to know the science. And this can help you better understand complex scientific topics that relate to health research so that you can be a more discerning consumer about what you hear and read in the news so you're more well-informed about decisions about your own health. And know the science features a variety of materials, including interactive modules, quizzes, and videos to provide you with engaging, straightforward content. Con uh, content. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation about health topics. It's widespread, uh, as you probably know, and there's a need for strong scientific literacy efforts to, uh, to especially with complementary integrative health approaches. And uh, many of these approaches are ready available in the marketplace, as I said, and are often selected for self-care without really consulting with your physician. So recognition of the science. Uh, literacy gap is important, and you really need to be, again, an informed consumer, uh, and this, uh, this webpage can help you uh, think more critically about what you're hearing about complementary health approaches. So with that, I'll stop. Here's our website, and I'm happy to take any questions or uh, uh, comments you may have. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for the wonderful presentation, Dr. Sherlock. I never knew yoga and meditation were that vital for a person. How often do you recommend we do yoga every day to improve our mental capacity? Yeah, you know, I think it's uh, the more you do, the better you get. It's like any kind of uh, practice. If you think about uh, be, just being in school and learning all you're learning now, uh, yoga is just another form of practice 
the more you do, the better you'll get. But I think what it's really showing is that yoga, uh, these kinds of meditative practices, movement meditation, whether it's yoga, qigong, tai chi, or just meditation, just the ability to focus your attention, concentrate on your breathing, can have so much more benefits in terms of scholastic achievement, being able to manage stress, more easily reduce your blood pressure, things that are important for your overall health. So I would say, you know, as, as much or as little as you can do will have some benefit. And I, what's interesting to me is that these practices are actually changing your brain in important ways that can be really helpful to you uh, now and in the future. Thank you so much for the answer. That's really amazing. Also, if anyone has any more questions, you can type in the chat and we'll tell them for you. Thank you. Happy to answer any questions. Don't be shy. I'll give everyone like a minute or so. And if, it, if no one has any questions, we can wrap it up. And if anyone thinks of a question, we can always like forward it to you. Yeah, sure. Feel free to email me if you have any questions at all. I'm happy to answer them. Um, it's a pleasure to have a chance to speak with you all. And uh, let me know if there's anything, uh, anything further you'd like uh, me to help with. So, Someone asked, what is your PhD in? Yes, that's a great question. My PhD is in psychology. Um, I was interested in learning about behavior and the brain. And um, I did some research actually before coming to NIH at the Naval Medical Research Institute, which is um, right on the campus of the Naval Medical Center. And I was looking at actually how stress affects people's ability to think. And for a while, I was actually working with the uh, Navy SEALs in um, Norfolk, Virginia. They experienced a lot of stress, as you might imagine, in the military setting. And uh, we were trying to figure out ways to help them improve their memory. And one, um, one promising result we found was a natural product called tyrosine, which uh, is used to um, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a natural product that's used uh, to um, to make neurotransmitters in your brain, and we thought that uh, these neurotransmitters were becoming depleted under stress. And by giving uh, tyrosine, we were able to re to replenish those neurotransmitters that led to better uh, thinking and memory in, in the Navy SEALs. And we did some studies in the laboratory, and we actually went uh, into the field and worked with them while they were doing military operations in Anchorage, Alaska. 